This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the New Books in Hindu Study podcast. The podcast is part of the New Books Network podcast channel, which has been created under the auspices of Amherst College. I am your host, Shandeep Saha, Associate Professor of Religious Studies at Athabasca University, a research and distance learning university dedicated to breaking down educational barriers by offering open and flexible learning options across the disciplines. For a range of courses and programs offered at Athabasca, University, please check out www.athabascau.ca. Today, I'm happy to have Dr. Lavinia Vimsani on the podcast. Uh, she's the editor of a series of essays that has just been published by Bloomsbury, Bloomsbury Publishing, and the title of the book is called Modern Hinduism in Text and Context. Lavinia, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Sandeep. Uh, Honored to be here. So, Lavinia, uh, how about if we start by uh, having you introduce yourself to our listeners. Okay. Um, I'll start with my uh, PhDs. You know, my academic and professional career uh, spans three countries, uh, uh, India, Canada, and the United States. Uh, my first PhD is in history from University of Hyderabad in Hyderabad. Uh, it was um, awarded Junior Research Fellowship and Senior Research Fellowship from Government of India's University Grants Commission. My second PhD is in Religious Studies from McMaster University in Canada. My thesis completed here, uh, Hindu and Jain Mythology of Balarama, uh, won the Best Thesis Honorable Mention Prize from Canadian Association of South Asian Studies. Uh, I published three books, Hindu, Jain Mythology of Balarama, Krishna in History, Thought and Culture, uh, and uh, the present book. Modern Hinduism in Text and Context. My next book uh, is in press. Uh, It's on Indian history. Uh, It's called India and New History. I'm also currently working on uh, my next project, uh, again on Indian history. It's called Ancient Settlement Patterns of South India. Uh, I am editor-in-chief of International Journal of Indic Studies, I am recently elected Vice President and President-Elect of Ohio Academy of History, and I have been teaching Indian History, Asian History, and Religious Studies uh, here at uh, Shani State University for over 10 years now. That is one impressive resume. Um, <laughs> Thank you so much, Sandeep. Uh, so let's talk about the uh, your new book, Modern Hinduism in Text and Context. It's very different from your previous research that you've been doing on 
on Krishnite religious traditions. So uh, tell me, what was the genesis behind the book? What motivated you to put the volume together? Um, uh, you know, uh, we all meet and discuss our field, right? We discuss about our research, our teaching, and our, you know, what is happening in the field, right? Uh, it has always come up in our discussions, right? Modern Hinduism and classical Hinduism. They're all seen as two disjunct uh, practices, right? Um, and that's where the genesis of this book lies, you know, we, we wanted to do a book, uh, and the book that examines both aspects, not separately, but together. Uh, we want to understand Hinduism, we want to understand text, but we also want to understand it in the context of uh, modern practice. That's what this book is about. We understand text, sources, and modern practice together. So, um, two questions coming off that, uh, off your answer there. Um, number one, when we're looking at texts uh, in the context of modern society, do we always find uh, kind of a disjunct? So, in other words, the texts provide us with an ideal view of whatever the author is talking about. But then how well does that, do, does it usually play out exactly as the author would like it in the book or does it become something widely different? <laughs> right, you know, uh, that is always true, right? You know, the book always gives something and when everybody is doing it, it might come out different, right? You know, for example, I, I will give um, 30 different be- people the same uh, soup recipe and uh, the pack of soup, right? You know, I asked them to make 30 people make soup, but do we think all of them would make the soup in the same way? No, right? Right. But the recipe is same, the idea is same, and the soup package I gave them is the same. So uh, the, the, uh, the concept of religion is the same. Of course, they, they're writing, the texts have uh, written the ideas and concepts, but Practice, of course, differs in different geographical regions, different, you know, many factors can contribute to difference. But uh, there there would still be some kind of unifying element, Uh, you know, for example, rite of passage, right? Mm -hmm. We didn't know the word rite of passage existed until 1969. Right. Mm-hmm. That that doesn't mean that it was not described in Mahabharata or it was not done, you know, the passage of entrances and that was not done before, right? We're only understanding the pattern now. So we are looking back and trying to see what it is. Very interesting. Now my, my second <laughs> question sort of related to that is um when it as a historian, do you think it's possible to sort of reconstruct the way texts played out in their context in a pre-modern setting. So if we're looking at pre-modern India and we're trying to understand how texts were lived out in that time period, is it possible to reconstruct that? It's obviously easier to do it in the modern period because we have the sources while right. we're out doing field work. But is it really possible to get a sense of how people would live out their the religious texts that they're listening to or reading, sure. you know, yeah. say back in the seventeenth century. Right. Yeah. Um, as a historian, you know, <laughs> this is always uh, something that um, I try to find the answer. Uh, you know, we we're always looking at the past. We're always looking at these sources and trying to reconstruct. Right. Um, you know, we only have limited amount of. 
uh, information, limited amount of text, limited amount of inscriptions, limited amount of uh, things, right? So uh, I always uh, come up with the same question, you know, what if there is more information? Uh, what if uh, there is uh, another aspect to this, right? So, uh, of course, we have understood the past religion, past life and past um, practice with all the available resources that we have. Right. But anytime there is a new resource or there is something new coming up, it changes. Right. We, we try to change it. Uh, and um, the understanding uh, and changing it is inevitable. Right. We, it, it happens. So that's what we're trying to do here. Of course, we understood the religion, uh, but now we are adding more things to understand it in a clear way. Right. Now, um, I believe there's 13 essays in the book. The uh-huh. content is extremely diverse. You have topics ranging from uh, Shaivite uh, religious texts to nationalist biographies and novels and Indian dance traditions. So I'm going to get you to sort of just take us really, 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 really uh, briefly through the contents of the essays. So the, uh, our audience can just get an idea of what type of books are covered in the text. Um, we we have uh, traditional texts uh, covered, you know, uh, of course, Mahabharata and Ramayana and uh, Puranas um, are examined. Uh, but in addition to that, we also examine uh, modern literature. Uh, for example, I examine uh, Gora, you know, modern literature, right? But it has symbolism from traditional Hinduism. Uh, and, uh, of course, you know, the essay on uh, Sri Aurobindo uh, also examines Aurobindo's uh, writings, but it's modern literature, but, of course, you know, examines uh, the Vedanta and Vedic and yoga practices. So the concepts are classical, but, you know, we, we have modern literature as well as traditional literature examined in a number of articles here. Yeah, the, the article... Um they're all very fascinating articles. The the article, particularly on the South Indian artist who uh, um, was uh, making pictures, I believe, oh, the, and yeah, Hussein um, is his, his own blood. Yeah, uh, I, 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 how did he come up with that idea? But why <laughs> using his blood? Why not just use watercolors like everybody else? Right? You know, Husseini actually, uh, you know, took blood uh, out and, you know, he he got it frozen and then made a sculpture of uh, Jailalta's head with frozen blood. You know, we, we have a picture of it in the, in the book. You, know, you have seen well, it. Why before. blood? <laughs> why, what was the significance of blood for him that he wanted to do, the, do it that way? Right. You know, uh, Amy Ruth Holt, she examines that and she connects it to the um, sacrificial blood and she connects it to the story of uh, Draupadi. Uh, And if you remember Draupadi, you know, uh, she actually um, makes a vow in the Mahabharata that, you know, all the Karwas should be killed. You know, she'll be, she'll tie her hair only once the blood is, you know... uh, uh, the blood is sacrificed, you know, <laughs> Kauravas are, you know, sacrificed. So uh, anyway, Bhima brings, you know, he smears his hands with, you know, and then brings it. So the story of this sacrificial blood from the story of 
Draupadi uh, plays an important role uh, in um, Tamil popular culture. Uh, and uh, you know the Draupadi, uh, you know, the popular practice in Tamil Nadu and, you know, in diaspora practices in uh, uh, Caribbean as well as uh, South Africa, you know, the, the goddess Draupadi, you know, Alfred Weidel has actually done uh, three volumes on this the practice of Draupadi and sacrificial blood and the mythology. So the mythology doesn't stop with the mythology and religious practice there. It, it now finds itself in popular art and modern political art. And this is how Husseini actually asserts himself. You know, he makes this art and then he finds his identity and he is able to actually form a political organization uh, with the support from Amma, you know, Jayalanta. Um, so... This, this is a good sort of segue into the next, uh, my next question. So okay. I, I'm just sort of wondering then, um, what are some of the central themes do you think that tie these essays together? So if readers are picking up the book and they're looking at the essays and they're trying to find certain themes that tie the essays together, what do you think those would be? Right. Um, uh, the the number of themes that are addressed here are uh, gender, uh, ritual, uh, modern practice, literature, and ethics. Uh, so uh, there are two or three different essays tied together with each theme. Um, for example, gender, uh, there are four articles. Um, you know, uh, and um, uh, ritual, uh, of course, there are three different articles. Uh, and, um, uh, you know, uh, textual and uh, early practice, of course, there are three different articles. And, of course, ethics, modern ethics, you know, violence, nonviolence, and, you know, ecology. Uh, so um, these themes are examined, but these themes are examined not in a disparate way. They're all connected. So each theme actually flows through two or three different articles, and they all examine um, with with a comprehensive view, you know, it, it gives a comprehensive view on each theme uh, once all these three different articles are studied. So um, let's talk about your particular contribution to the book. Now, you've done a really fascinating analysis of uh, Rabindranath Tagore's novel, Gora. Now, this is a very big and complex novel, having read it myself. So um, let's let's talk, give us a very, very short summary of what the book is about. Okay. Uh, Ravina Tagore's Gora, of course you noted, uh, it's a very complicated book. And uh, Tagore uh, himself, you know, he, he writes in a very, very uh, symbolic, uh, complicated way. Uh, um, all his stories, they're not just simple representations of the characters that we see. So same thing here uh, with Gora. You know, Gora, I read as a high school student, uh, did not understand much, read it a couple of times afterwards. Uh, it's only recently that I understood. So, you know, you, you know, you have read it. It's, right. it's, it's that complex. Um, you know, it's highly symbolic. So anyway, that's what I examine here. Uh, and, you know, there are uh, mainly two families, you know, the protagonist, the female protagonist, her family, male protagonist, his family. So Gora, Gora's family, and then his counterpart, Sucharita, and her family. So Gora, of course, his family, his mother, father, and brother, uh, and traditional Orthodox India family. 
And on the other side, Sucharita is living in a reformist Hindu household. She is living in a Brahma Samaj household. So her father, of course, she was also living with foster parents. So she, her brother, and the children, three daughters are for foster parents, you know, Labanya, Lalita, and Leela. Uh, so we have this household on one side. And on the other side, we have Gora, his friend Binai, and his brother Mohim, and then his father and mother. So it's the interactions between these characters. But the point is not the interaction between these characters. What these interactions represent about the colonial society in India and how they are actually struggling uh, with the evolving India and then finding their place in this evolving India. So that's the point of the story. So um, let's take a look at the uh, central figure of um, Gora himself, because he comes from a very orthodox Hindu family. And um, you've talked about the theme of rite of passage. So how does that theme uh, applied to him. You used um, Victor Turner's uh, theory in, uh, about rites of passage and um, about liminality and moving from one stage to another. You used that particular theory in uh, your analysis of, of, uh, of Gora and his sort of journey through the book. So what is this rite of passage? What is this journey that he's going through? Right. Um, you know, this aspect was actually missed uh, in many of the readings uh, yeah. because the the first part was not translated well. You know, the poem that he included, Rabindranath actually has a beautiful poem uh, in the first, right on the first page, but um, people uh, mistranslated it uh, and really did not understand. You know, he actually begins it with with the uh, with the poem uh, representing representing a caged bird. So caged bird, and then he goes on to explain the caged mind, you know, and the caged mind has to be freed to get the freedom. So that's how he actually represents the colonialism. The colonialism is there. It's, it's like the caged bird, but it did not put the person in real cage. It's actually imprisoned the mind. Uh, okay. So the symbolism of freeing the bird is actually symbolism of freeing the mind. Right. So once the mind is freed, then, of course, we'll have independence. So right. the symbolism of uh, Tagore you will find in this book is all about freeing this mind. And Tagore, uh, through Gora, speaks about this through all the incidents that he discusses. Uh, and this is the struggle Gora is facing, right? Gora is living in this orthodox household, and he's uh, taught how to live as a traditional Hindu, and he has Upanayana, and then he's this young Hindu man, right? But he's finding his own struggles, right? The, the Hinduism that he understood, and then the administration and society that he's seeing outside, uh, present day struggle to him. So he tries to discuss it with his family, with his friend Binay, and with everyone he meets. And then he tries to make himself more orthodox, hoping that that would give him the real identity and then he can live free, right? Uh, which did not help him. And then he tries to argue with all the gurus that come to visit his father. And none of them could answer him because they are living in this, you know, textual world. They're not living in this modern world. So 
uh, and th- there is only one guru, uh, Vidyavagi, who was able to answer him and suggest him some books, and he starts reading. And at the same time, there is a huge discussion going on in the newspaper. Uh, you know, there is a, a missionary that uh, was writing about Hinduism, you know, this idolatrous religion and, you know, backward religion and all that. Uh, and of course, Gora was trying to find himself, but, you know, he he thought he has to answer all these questions and, you know, he has to give a retard to everything that the that was published. So he sent kind of like a series of letters. And in the end, the editor actually had to jump in and stop the letters because it was a wave of letters. The, the missionary would write letters, you know, Gora would write letters, and it's like an unending duel. So finally, Gora decides, I will write a book on Hinduism. So he studies more uh, about Hinduism. And then he actually understands how uh, there is a disjunct between the practice and the textual Hinduism. And then he tries to visit the villages around um, Calcutta and then tries to uh, see what original Hinduism was and how uh, people were actually moved away from it through colonial practice of education and imprisoning the mind. So that's why he talks about this imprisonment of the mind a couple of times throughout the book. Uh, and he talks, you know, Gora says right in the beginning of the book, he says, you know, the real India is not found in Marshman's history, yeah, Marshman's Indian history. It's actually found in the villages outside of Calcutta, right? You know, so that that actually is this. You know, the, the teaching, uh, the, the training has actually changed uh, Indians, imprisoned their mind. They're not actually seeing the truth that is around them. So what I found striking about um, Bora is that in many ways, it's a celebration in a sense of Brahmo Samaj's values. Tagore came from a Brahmo family. Because in Uh the end, it's sort of touting a universalist sort of Uh message, right? Because the extremes of Hindu orthodoxy is rejected by Tagore, but uh, there we have the other character uh, in the book, uh, Panubabu, I can't remember his name off the top of my head. Uh, Panubabu, yeah, Panubabu is the the orthodox Brahmo. Of the Brahmo side. But then yeah. I, what I didn't quite understand is why not use the character of Binoy as the protagonist for the book? Because he's the one who sort of, you know, he's the one who I believe comes from the, uh, well, you know, he seems to be the one that's more receptive to Brahmo Samajist ideas uh, more than, than Gora is. Like, what is Binoy's sort of role? In the in the novel, he's a very quiet, sort of very introspective person, and Gora uh, sometimes can be quite sort of overbearing yeah. and belligerent at times in the way that he speaks to people. So, what yeah. is Binoy's point in the book then? Yeah, yeah, Binoy. Uh, of course, you know, as you noted, it's very calm, quiet going. He's a representative of the modern Indians, you know, at the time, uh, colonial India, the young, uh, young of the colonial India at the time. Uh, They're educated, they know what is going on, but uh, they don't react. So that's, that's, that's what is represented through him. Of course, ultimately, in the end, he takes the right decision. Uh, he takes charge whenever he can, you know, uh, he understands what is right, but not assertive. That's what India was at that time. 
it, it's, it has its mind imprisoned. And it knows that the young people that are coming into the world knew that, but they are not reacting to it. They are kind of going with the flow in a quiet manner. Right. So, right? so when we're looking, um, we talked about the males in the character, and what I found striking about Gora when I when I read the book was the fact that um, the men. All the men in the novel come off, at least in my opinion, as being extremely sort of weak compared to the women. The women in the novel have the strongest, the stronger personalities in the in in the book. And what is Tagore trying to say there? Because they seem to be much more strong and very forceful and. Sucharita in particular and her sister are both women of very strong opinions. Um, mm-hmm. But they're not at the center of this book. What is Tagore trying to say about the position of women in Indian society at the time? Or is he trying to say anything at all? Right. Okay. Um, as a woman, you know, <laughs> I can say women are always strong. <laughs> so, <laughs> yes, um, they are. <laughs> yeah. So uh, what Tagore is trying to do here is uh, women are strong, are smart, uh, they can take their decisions, but uh, they're limited uh, by a number of uh, a number of you know traditional rules that are placed on them. Um, he's trying to show how uh, Sucharita and Lalita came over these things. Uh, came over our limitations, right? Uh, they're 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 teenagers, right? Can you imagine a fourteen year, fifteen year old girl uh, starting her own school to teach that other didn't girls? Occurred to me until later on in the book when they're trying to arrange Lalita's marriage, I think, and we found out she was fourteen at the time. Yeah, to arrange the marriage. Yeah, so Charita was only fourteen, and she was. She was able to talk, discuss, understand all these things. Yeah. And uh, and when she moved out of her um, foster parents' house to move into her own house, you know, they have more space now. So she starts a school with uh, Lalita. Lalita is even younger than her. So can you imagine a 13-year-old, 14-year-old girl starting a girl's school by themselves? So they are that strong. They are that smart. So Tagore actually has... Uh, very independent, strong women in mind. And he was also trying to represent if women were allowed to act on their own initiation, on their own impulse, they can actually accomplish much more positive things for India than we have ever seen. So when we're talking about Gora, do you see what 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 is its present message? Since we're talking about text and context, um, mm-hmm. what do you see as the significance of the novel for in terms of modern Indian society, or does it still have any relevance? <laughs> oh, it still has relevance. It still has so much relevance. You know what what Tagore said. Uh, uh, you know, India is not in uh, Marchman's history book. That is still true. What Indians thought about themselves is different. What Indians thought, their history is, their society is, what India is, in schools is different. It's still different. You know, the Indian history textbook, if you see it, 
is much different than what Indians think about themselves. The the colonialist history is still uh, part of curriculum. So so uh, so of course Tagore has relevance still. Uh, and then um, Tagore's idea of um, having a society that is equal for everybody. Right, mm-hmm. uh, whatever religion, whatever class, whatever uh, person's origin uh, should not matter when one person is living in a society. And India had always been a pluralistic society, so that's what Gora finds when he reads these traditional texts. He understands that India is a pluralistic society. Of course, people have different identities, different thoughts, different practices, but they are all seen as part of this uh, mosaic that that works together. So uh, we we see Gora visiting small villages, visiting, you know, um, and trying to take part in the villager's life. Uh, And he breaks a number of rules uh, that, you know, the the Orthodox Hindus would follow, right? You know, he would accept food, he would accept water, he would live in, you know, anybody's house uh, and all that. So, uh, which is seen as, you know, kind of uh, strange in those days, right? Um, But when we see... Uh, traditional Hindu texts and traditional practice, of course, that is uh, accepted practice. Of course, monks would travel and accept food and um, uh, water from everyone. When did this come about? We don't know. But Tagore's ideas in Gora still have relevance for uh, Indian society uh, and they are still part of Indian culture. And I guess that an important part of that as well is um, the rejection of religious extremism. Uh, because mm-hmm. we have both both uh, represented in the book. We have sort of a very mm-hmm. extreme sort of Brahmo Samaj member who, who believes that he's views right. are the right ones. And then on the other hand, you see um, uh, Gora and particularly his his father um, right. as signs of religious orthodoxy. And uh, right. both of those kind of just get sidelined by the end of the right. novel as being um, ineffectual. Right. right, right. So, so yeah, yeah. So, so Gora represents this um, Hindu society that lost its way. And then uh, Brahma Samaj, Panu Babu, and all those represent, uh, mm-hmm. you know, lost Hindu society, but... Um, that it has an imprisoned mind. It's thinking, you know, it's, it's a colonial uh, representation. So it's thinking that they know everything and they are right and everybody else is wrong. So the Hinduism is all wrong and Brahma Samaj is all right. So, um, so uh, in the end, all of them actually find a middle way. Uh, Gora falls out of, you know, Orthodox Hinduism and uh, Sucharita falls out of, you know, uh, Brahma Samaj. Uh, and um, Binaya, of course, falls out of, you know, he is the first one to actually take this middle step. You know, Binaya and Lalita get married, right? Yeah. In the marriage ceremony, they actually design their own rituals, right? Mm-hmm. The, the significance of ritual again, they're entering the new life, they're entering a new passage, right? So, and the rituals represent this new path. They're not old, they're not, you know, anything that's established. Right. So they, they, they follow traditions from both sides, right? They don't have, um, some Hindu symbols they don't uh, include, mm-hmm. some Brahmo symbols they don't include, mm-hmm. right? So, so rituals, of course, have a meaning. 
and you know, again, a rite of passage comes into play here. So anyway, um, the passage is represented very eloquently in the book. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the the imprisonment of the mind, and then the loss of individuality of all these characters, and the, how they are at a loss, they can't find themselves. And then in the end, of course, the, through marriage ritual, uh, Tagore represents how they came out into a new path. Right. In a new way. So, you know, the, the whole book itself uh, actually discusses through these last people. It's actually talking about this last, last status of India. So India lost itself and it has to find a new path. Uh, and of course, you know, uh, and it has to be on equal footing and everybody should be equal. So I'm going to yeah. shift, I'm going to shift back to yeah. the, uh, from your article back to the overall structure of modern Hinduism and text and context. And um, when readers pick up your book, um, uh-huh. what contributions to the field, you know, do you hope your book will make? And what would you like your readers of the book uh, to take from uh, to to take from the essays in terms of uh, Hinduism, how we understand Hinduism, and how as we as academics approach the study of the tradition. Right. Um, it, the, the book has a lot to contribute. Uh, and uh, as I already said, the, this is, you know, talks about traditional uh, sources and also the modern practice. So it has a lot to contribute in both ways. And of course, a number of themes. Uh, when we see of Hinduism, right, you know, the colonial studies of Hinduism uh, have always been... Um, kind of a disjunctive, you know, the, the, the classical Hinduism is different, modern practice is different, uh, regional Hinduism is different, uh, and different Shaiva sects are different, you know, Shaivism is different, Shaiva sect is different, you know, so, um, uh, so there is an article uh, which talks about, you know, multi-regional, multi-linguistic Vira Shaivism, it talks about, you know, the modern practice, how the Jangamwadi Matha Mm-hmm. Uh, in Banaras, actually represents the universal universalist approach of this Virashaiva group mm-hmm. as against what was uh, seen to be, you know, as a regionalist group. Uh, and she discusses by studying Telugu, Kannada, Marathi, and uh, Sanskrit sources yeah. how it was always pluralistic. Right. It again ties up into a number of other articles, and also Gora, also right. You know, Hinduism. Uh, is this pluralistic uh, religion, not not a, you know, regionalistic or, you know, not a one-way kind of uh, religion. So, um, so a number of texts, of course, they, they are studied here, but they are studied with a view to understand uh, what was the understanding up to this point and what we can learn uh, from studying these new articles. So, um, Lavanya, um, as we are going to draw the podcast to a close soon, um, do you have a preview for our audience as to what you have planned for your next research? Um, I am uh, one of my books is actually in press. Um, I'm uh, currently making edits to it. Um, so it's uh, India and New History. Uh, it uh, utilizes a number of new sources uh, that we have on Indian history, uh, and um, it gives a comprehensive introduction to Indian history. Uh, and that's one. And then I'm also working on a manuscript 
I'm working on the manuscript of uh, um, another book. Uh, it's uh, Ancient Settlement Patterns of South India. So that's still in the manuscript stage. So these are my projects that upcoming projects. Lovely. Uh, Lavanya, thank you for being on the New Books in Hindu Studies podcast. It was a pleasure to be able to talk to you about your book, Modern Hinduism in Text and Context, which has been released by Bloomberry Publishing. So uh, it is out there on the market for anyone who would like to read it. To our listeners, thank you for joining me on the New Books in Hindu Studies podcast. Um, the podcast is thank you. Books Network, brought to you by Amherst College Press. And uh, if you would like to know more about the New Books Network and the range of podcasts that the network offers, uh, please visit uh, www.newbooksnetwork.com and subscribe as well to the network on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever app you use to listen to your favorite podcasts. Lavanya, thank you again. Oh, thank you so much, Sandeep. Uh, it's, it's my honor and pleasure to be here. And uh, I'm your host, Shandeep Saha, Associate Professor of Religious Studies at Athabasca University. To learn more about why Athabasca has been the world's leader in open education, please visit www.athabascau.ca. Until next time, uh, thank you for listening and take good care.